Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Preachers, many preachers, fear preaching on Mother's Day. Uh, There's a different type of expectation uh, that is kind of placed on the preacher, I think. Um, Unspoken expectation to just preach an awesome sermon about how awesome mothers are. Um, And uh, I'm one of those preachers that kind of fear preaching on Mother's Day. And, And I'll tell you right now, this is the first time that I've ever done it. Um, As you can see by my presence here, I've drawn the short end of the stick out of the preaching pastors here at at Fairlawn, Um, but I'm very confident, I'm very confident, and the reason why I'm very confident uh, is that with a sermon title like Idolatry and Judgment in Babylon, um, it's very clear to me that this is probably the last time I will have to preach on Mother's Day at Fairlawn. With that being said, let's turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 is very similar to Daniel chapter 2 in the way that the narrative unfolds. And since I preached Daniel chapter 2, I wanted to focus on the differences in Daniel chapter 5. And so what we're going to do is read not the whole chapter but portions of it to give us the sense of where it differs from Daniel chapter 2. And then we will proceed. So we'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 6, and then we'll read verses 22, 23, and verse 30. So go ahead and follow along with me. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king, his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And now to 22 and 23. Daniel, in between the portions here that we're reading, after they partake of this idolatry, this hand appears on the wall and writes a message to all who are present Uh, at this party that the king is throwing. Nobody can interpret it, and so they bring in Daniel to interpret the message. And where we pick up in verse 22, he is uh, rebuking the king for his idolatry, and then will tell him what the message means. So verse 22, Daniel says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house you have brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hands is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored." And then verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, 
was killed. Pray with me. Father, we come to your word this morning realizing that there will be a hard word for us. Realizing that the idolatry and judgment spoken of here is not just about people thousands of years ago. It is about us. And so we come needing the help of your spirit to tear down the callous hearts, to open up our minds to the truth, and to make us willing to bow our knee before you. Give us this help now. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What is the greatest danger for the Christian in a godless culture? Many Christians will say persecution. Uh, If we're living in a hostile culture, a culture that is specifically hostile to our faith, the greatest danger for us is persecution. Many Christians will say that. But the greatest danger to the Christian living in a godless culture is not persecution, it is conformity. Conformity to the ways of the world. You see, in persecution, we may lose our bodies, but in conformity, we may lose our souls. And that's why conformity is the greater threat. And in Daniel chapter 5 here, we see a warning about the danger of conforming to a godless culture through worshiping the idols of the culture. And this consequently leads to the judgment of God. And we see this in the example of the Babylonian king, his worshiping idols and his being judged for it. And so as we open up this scripture this morning, what I would like to do is is to identify the idols that grip our hearts, identify the idols that have a special place in our hearts and lay them at the feet of the only God who is worthy of our worship. And so in order to do this, let's take a look again at the story as a whole. It begins with a new king and an idolatrous feast. Uh, You'll notice here that we're no longer talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Most commentators believe that the events of chapter 4 in Daniel to the events of chapter 5 are about 20 years um, in, in distance from one another. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar has died and Belshazzar has taken over the reign of Babylon. And so this new king, we pick up with him throwing a great feast for a thousand of his closest friends, as it says. And they begin drinking wine. And and what, what King Belshazzar does is he's like, hey, I remember King Nebuchadnezzar when he exiled all of the people from, uh, from Israel to Babylon. He took some stuff from the temple of God, some of which were these golden and silver cups that were used for the worship of God in the temple. And he said, bring me those golden cups. We're going to drink our wine from them. And this was, as the story unfolds, obviously a very bad idea uh, because he took what was consecrated for the worship of God and began using it to worship the idols of gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood. And then we see the mysterious hand writing on the wall. 
this message that makes King Belshazzar tremble because he doesn't know what it means. And so Daniel is called in to interpret what is on the wall. And ultimately, he says that because of your idolatry and your pride, you will lose both your kingdom and your life. Now, why is this story here? It seems like a rather random insertion into the book of Daniel, does it not? One, one commentator actually says that. He, he gets to Daniel chapter 5 and he's like, this chapter comes out of nowhere. Like it seemingly doesn't connect to the rest of the book of Daniel. But I think that there's something very important here that does connect to the rest of the book of Daniel. And that's what I want to unfold for you. And it is this theme of the danger of conforming to our culture through worshiping their idols and then being judged for it. Let's look at this theme in the first six chapters of Daniel. What's the first thing that happens in Daniel chapter 1 when Daniel and his companions are brought to Babylon? They are first taught the pagan literature and language. They are given new names, names that no longer honor the God of Israel, but honor the pagan gods. And they are told to partake in the diet of the pagans. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to conform them to the ways of the pagan culture around them. In Daniel chapter 2, we see the wise men and their gods up against Daniel and his God. Who are you going to bow down to? Who has the real power here? In Daniel chapter 3, we see King Nebuchadnezzar raise up an image and command that everyone bow down to this idol. Bow or die. The danger of conformity through idolatry. In Daniel chapter 4, we see King Nebuchadnezzar in his pride elevate himself as an object of worship. In Daniel chapter 5, we have just seen the praising of the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And in Daniel chapter 6, we will see King Darius send out a decree that no one should pray to any god but him. The danger of conformity through idolatry. Now, what is the purpose of this theme in Daniel? If this is a legitimate theme here in this book, what's the purpose of it? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to ask who the book was written to. The book was primarily written to Israel, God's people. And what do we know about God's people at the time Daniel was written? They were in exile in pagan lands because they refused to repent of their idol worship. They were under the judgment of God because they refused to stop worshiping the idols of the pagans. And so I think that what Daniel chapter 5 is seeking to do here is to show the Israelites who are worshiping the same gods as this king that if you don't repent, the judgment will continue. And it is also a warning to those faithful Jews who are living faithfully in the midst of exile that there's a great danger in conforming to the culture around you through worshiping their idols. Now, as I said when I prayed, this story is not just about this king, and it's not just about exiled Israel, it is about us. 
And if we're going to look deeply into our own hearts in light of this passage, we have to begin to ask ourselves what ways are we tempted and often do succumb to conforming to our culture and worshiping its idols. So let's do that here for a moment. And I want to begin by giving you a definition of an idol, and I'm taking this from Tim Keller. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. I think that there are two big idols in America and two idols that specifically grab our hearts here in Wayne County, Ohio. The first is a very general, big-picture idol that encompasses many small ones. And the second one is a very specific idol. The first is the idol of lifestyle. Big-picture, general category here. And the things that make up a lifestyle are things like the jobs and careers that we have, the money that we receive, the homes that we live in, the, the material possessions that we have, our reputation, our comforts, or even our family. Our lifestyle is a, is a uh, compilation of all of these different things that can be idols in our lives. And I think that there are two indicators that we must look at to see if our lifestyle is an idol, is something that is more important to us than God, or that is gripping our heart and imagination more than God, something that we are seeking to give us what only God can give us. The first indicator that your lifestyle is an idol is that you orient all of your decisions around maintaining or increasing your lifestyle. So think for, think for yourself over the course of the last month or two or even the last year or two. What have you oriented the use of your energy, emotional strength, and financial resources around? When you think about the large decisions that you have made in your life, what is at the middle controlling those decisions? Students. What have you oriented your choice of college or career around? I know many of you are going to graduate soon and you're going to go and get a job or you're going to go to college. When thinking about where you are going to go and what you are going to do, has the only thing that has come into your mind is how can I create a comfortable lifestyle for myself? Have you simply thought in terms of the type of job I can get and the money that that will provide for me? Have you simply thought in terms of creating a reputation and a name for yourself? When considering what you will do after high school, have you prioritized the kingdom of God at all in your decision? Adults, when was the last time you sacrificed any part of your lifestyle for the kingdom of God, for the church, or for your spiritual benefit? It is a very rare occasion that somebody will come to us here, the pastors, and say, Pastor, I really want to just work one less day a week so that I can dedicate time to the kingdom. 
I really just want to work a little bit less so that, so that I can do more at the church. And I think that the reason why that is is because we're very concerned about maintaining our lifestyle. And to decrease ourselves in the area of work and the money that we receive would mean that we need to change our lifestyle. It means that we would need to change the way that we live our lives, and are we willing to do that? You see, an easy way to determine what we are worshiping as God is to look at what we are willing to sacrifice for. The first way that we understand that our lifestyle is an idol is to see what we orient all of our decisions around. Is it around our lifestyle or is it around God and what he desires for us? The second indicator that your lifestyle is an idol is that you teach your children to love the idols that you love. The things that you prioritize, the things that you worship are the things you will pass down to your children. Are you passing down a good work ethic in hopes that they will use it to create a comfortable lifestyle for themselves? Are you pressuring them to excel in school so that they will attain worldly success? So that when they move out of your house and they get jobs of their own and families of their own, perhaps you're not embarrassed by what they've made of themselves. So you pressure them in school, you pressure them in worldly success, and you prioritize helping them create a successful lifestyle? Are the decisions you are making subtly teaching your children that life is all about maintaining an enjoyable lifestyle? Or, through the decisions you make, are you telling your children that their lifestyle is unworthy of their worship? The danger of conformity through idolatry When we give in to the culture around us, we begin to worship their gods. We begin to live our lives based on their value system and not on God's. And this is idolatry. The idol of lifestyle, big picture, big category. Now to a more specific one, the idol of sports. And I want to consider this idol in the context of the parent-child relationship. I read an article as I was preparing for this message written many years ago entitled uh, The Top Seven Idols in America, one of which was sports. And I want to quote this author at length because I think what he says is so right, even for today, even probably more so for today than it was when he wrote it. He says, it is professional sports that powers collegiate sports. College sports power high school sports, which power grade school sports, which create a huge interlocking system. And the result is that today, one of the most obscene, disturbing scenes on TV or the internet or a sports field is not sex or violence. It is a small boy, barely into grade school, nearly lost in a football helmet and uniform, being socialized into a culture and worldview that is artificial, unhealthy, and ultimately demeaning. 
trapped in a uniform and trapped in a deadly culture. It is a training in idolatry. It is actually a form of spiritual formation or malformation. The author goes on at the end of his article to give five tests to help us determine what our idols are, one of which is the test of comparative devotion with other gods or loyalties. Simply put, when push comes to shove, what wins out, Jesus or your idol? When the rubber meets the road, what wins out, Jesus or sports? Parents, can I be blunt with you for a moment? When we allow and even encourage our children to take part in sporting events that are on the one day a week that we set aside to worship as a family, that decision screams loud and clear to our children what God we are serving, and it's not Jesus. We think that it's just, it's just over the summer. We're just going to miss a couple weeks here or there. We convince ourselves that it's not a big deal when in reality we're training our children in idolatry by telling them it's okay. It's okay to go to this sporting event. When the rubber meets the road, what wins out? Jesus or our idols? Are we teaching our children to love Jesus and to renounce the idols of their culture? This is where it becomes very personal for us. You see, if we are going to teach them to love Jesus more than the idols of their hearts, we must love Jesus and renounce the idols of our hearts. You know what the scary thing is about being a parent and should cause us to be on our knees every day praying for God's grace? is that more often than not, your children will grow up to love and serve the God you do. And more often than not, your children will grow up to love and serve the idols that you do. Are we training our children in idolatry? The idol of lifestyle and the idol of sports that grip our hearts so often. Now, this passage doesn't just speak about idolatry. It also speaks about the consequences of idolatry, which is judgment. And in Scripture, I believe that we have a threefold pattern of God's judgment on his people. The first stage is that he warns them. He says, you're worshiping idols and you need to turn away from worshiping your idols or the judgment will come. We see this in the Old Testament prophets. Almost all of the Old Testament prophets are prophesying about the judgment that is to come because Israel is worshiping idols. The second stage is that God disciplines us. He begins to take things away from us. He begins to cause us to suffer so that we understand that we need him. We see this in the exile. Israel being exiled from their land. And then stage three, which is the most devastating stage of all, is that he gives his people up to the idols that they serve. 
Romans 1, 24 and 25, Paul speaks about this kind of judgment clearly. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Are we as a church under the judgment of God? Are you as an individual Christian, are you as a family unit under the judgment of God? Now I cannot say, and I will not say, if we are in a specific stage of judgment because this is very individual. There's a very real chance that many of us are at different places. But I will say this. From a junior high pastor, youth pastor perspective, one of the things that I hear more than anything else from both my students and parents is this, I'm just so busy. I just have one more practice to go to. I have another game to go to. I have another academic thing that I'm working on. I have this other hobby that I'm working on. I just don't have time. I'll let you be the one to decide what stage that that type of assertion would fit into. If we refuse to acknowledge our idols and renounce them, we will be judged by God, and perhaps we already are. But there is good news to be found in this chapter, and in the first six chapters of Daniel that we will now turn to, and that is that there is a resounding message throughout the first six chapters of Daniel. There is this danger of conformity through idolatry and the judgment that comes as a result of that, but in the midst of this, through the way that God is telling the narrative of Daniel, he is showing us over and over and over again that he is more worthy of worship than the idols that we serve. That he is more glorious than any idol we can set our hearts on. And we see this in Daniel 5. Look at verse 23. Daniel contrasts the idols that the king was serving with the glory of the one true God. He says, And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Here's the categorization of them. Which do not see or hear or know. They are nothing but the God in whose hand is your breath. The God in whose hand is all your ways you have not honored. You see, Daniel is showing the glory of God and the foolishness of the idols that the king serves. And he does this throughout the whole of the first six chapters of Daniel. In Daniel chapter one, we see God's command rule over the command of the kings through Daniel's diet. On the other side of Daniel keeping the diet God desires him, they, he, God is shown to rule because they are more healthy and more fit for service than any of the Babylonian men. In Daniel chapter two, we see God's power and wisdom reign over the power and wisdom of the king's wise men and their gods. 
In Daniel 3, we see God's worthiness to be praised reigning over King Nebuchadnezzar as God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. In chapter 4, God's glory reigns over Nebuchadnezzar as God humbles him for his pride. In Daniel chapter 5, God shows that he is the one true God by killing Belshazzar after his idolatrous feast. And in Daniel chapter 6, we will see God reign over the Babylonian wise men through delivering Daniel from the den of lions. The message in Daniel to God's idolatrous people is clear. The God who you left is greater. The God who you left is more glorious. Consider what the Psalms say about our God. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. For God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The works of God's hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. For great is his steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Can our idols compare to the glory of our God? What else does scripture say is at the right hand of God the Father? Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is only through and in Jesus Christ that we find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in the presence of God. You see, what we're being told is that Jesus is better. Jesus is more glorious. He is greater than any idol we replace him with. And he beckons us to come and find life in him and renounce the idols that we so often serve. Now, I love this. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The definition of an idol, as we saw earlier, is seeking in idols what only God can give us. How often we seek joy from our idols and pleasure from our idols. And we turn away from the God in whose hands are all of them. You see, with the beautiful display of his glory through the narratives of Daniel 1 through 6, God is graciously calling his people to repent and come back to him, to renounce their idols and to worship him alone. Where do we find the strength to turn away from our idols? If it was just a matter of the will, it would be an easy thing to do, right? Well, just stop. Well, just stop worshiping them. It's not an easy thing to do. Indeed, it's an impossible thing to do without grace. And that's why we have this, uh, we have this value as a church. It's called gospel-empowered faith. And what we mean by that is that if we're going to live a life holy before God, 
continually renouncing our idols and worshiping him alone, if we are going to live this life of faith, we must find our strength to do so in Jesus and what he has done. We must find our power in the gospel. You see, if we do not see the beauty of Jesus, our hearts will wander after idols. We must stop stop seeking in idols what only Jesus can give us. And day by day, we must turn our eyes upon Jesus. We must see that he is better, that in him and in him alone there is fullness of joy, and that in his face we find the strength to turn away from our idols and worship the living God.